0: This is a podcast from meow.net. M I A A W.net. Meow! Welcome to Genuine Inquiry, a monthly series of audio essays, each of which interrogates a topic close to our hearts. Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, Genuine Inquiry. I'm here again with Ken Walpole and we're going to continue a conversation we had a couple of months ago. There we were talking about why people continually experiment with ways of living and why people are drawn back to this process of experimentation. And one of the topics we touched upon but didn't really go anywhere with was the idea of cults. And now both Ken and I have been interested for many years in what it is that draws people to cults, and why it is that they follow them, and what we think about that. So I'm just going to begin by referring to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which says that a cult is a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious, or a great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work or the object of such devotion. Now, cults are normally seen as bad. And both Ken and I have had experiences in different ways of different cults. Perhaps if we've time, I'll tell you one of the most extraordinary experiences I, I had in my life with, with something which approximates a cult. But first, I'll ask Ken, what was it that drew you into being interested in cults?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for again inviting me back. Um, so it must, something must have worked last time. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Yes, the... A very early at young age, I did get quite interested in politics and left-wing politics and idealism and thought, you know, how important it was to change the world along with others. Um, but nothing particularly uh, shocking happened in that time. But um, uh, in my mid-twenties, I was a, a teacher and uh, also working associated with a radical bookshop in Hatney. And um, one day, someone came into the Coffee bar at the bookshop and I got chatting to him and he said he'd been recently over to Denmark where he'd visited the most wonderful experimental community at a small place called Twin. And what particularly interested me, because I was still then teaching as well, was that it had been set up with money from the government to establish a new kind of teacher training college, very much based on practical skills, and also to take in young uh, unschoolable young children or young people who were, who were school refusers, basically. But the, the significant thing about the project was the teachers who were going to be trained there had to build the college themselves. And the idea also was not only did they build the college and its lecture theatres and its classrooms and its dormitories, but they also tilled the land around them and hoped to become self-sufficient. And at the centre of this uh, very ambitious project the twin, uh, it's called the Necessary College. Actually, was the building of a windmill, uh, which, as we know from Orwell, kind of has a certain symbolic connotations. And he said, you know, would would we? They, they sometimes come over, came over to England and turned round and talked to people about other, talked with other people who were doing interesting things. And he thought they would be very interested in this radical bookshop I was working at at the time. And I said, fine, yeah. And and then one day, this large, very old Danish coach drew up outside the bookshop, and they all came in, and we had some nice discussions. And it was, um, you know, about twenty-five young people, ten adults, uh, just talking about the environment, politics, uh, living for each other. And then after they got went back to Denmark, I got an invitation. Um, saying that they would love to have a group of us come over to spend a week with them, carrying on the discussion. Uh, And the only qualification they made was that I should uh, try to bring a representative of typical uh, so-called Hackney people. Uh, And we went over in a minibus and there were a couple of home helps, um, domestic cleaners, taxi driver, swimming pool attendant, uh, two school students... Um, a couple of teachers, I think there were 10 or 11 of us in all, and we went over in the minibus uh, and drove through the night when we got to the other side into Denmark, and eventually arrived at this, you know, rather flat and fairly empty landscape with this large construction site going on. But the dormitories were already there, and some of the lecture rooms were there, Uh, and it all looked fantastically wonderful. And and they were very friendly, and we were made extremely welcome. I'm not generally happy with being told, having my life organised. But, you know, it was clearly a place that was based on quite a strong sense of ritual. So every mealtime would start with the singing of several kind of cheer-raising songs about working hard and building the ideal community and working in the fields. It was all very jolly. Uh, And then someone would say, you know, there would be a bit of a discussion, then we would eat, and then it was back to work again. But because our group was very mixed, um, and in fact I recently did go in touch with one of them, gone over there, this was, by the way, was 1975, it's a long time ago, and I said, well, did it, why did it, didn't it quite, not quite work? He said, well, the people in Hackney are kind of generally fairly anar- anarchic and uh, the routine and organisation doesn't go down too well. And what happened was that um, the second day we were there and we went to various classes and discussion groups, and again there was, you know, piano lessons, and guitar sing- singing classes, working in the fields. And then mid-afternoon, we knew that supper was 6.30. I said to the person who was basically I was kind of linked with, I was semi-regard as the leader of our group. I said, well, you know, we're all very keen to see a bit more Denmark. We'd like to kind of walk into the village and um, have a drink and maybe just yeah, chat to a few people. And immediately a kind of chill entered the room and I was told quite <laughs> simply that that would be unacceptable because they regarded the people of the village as kind of hostile to them, uh, and people who lived corrupt, bad lives. And this would be kind of um, bad faith on our part to try and befriend them. And that really disturbed me. Lots of things happened in the rest of the week. It was clear also that there was a guru, or a small group of people, it was called the teachers group, about whom there there was much discussion. Um, and I kept trying to ask to meet them, or we would like to see them, meet them. But we were always told they were too busy. And the other thing I think that made me alarmed was that we were split up. No, no we were all put in a dormitory with one other, you know, resident there. Um, and if, there was one married couple: there, a taxi driver and his wife. And they were split up. And the kind, the, all the young people there and the teachers had got into a kind of way of talking about themselves that I found slightly alarming in that they also described the difficult situations which they'd come from, possibly abusive domestic homes, drunk fathers, poor health and so on. But now they'd found the new life and they regretted all the things they'd done in the past. They kind of repented. Um, but it was the same arc of storyline that everybody said. They had this you know, this clear Uh, journey kind of narrative from the darkness to the light that didn't allow any uh, repositioning or backtracking or where people in conversation with you say things like well it seemed all right at the time but then this didn't happen they were just clearly on a single uh, journey with with only one direction and that seemed to me slightly inhuman Anyway, we had the week there and we came back and I tried occasionally to find out what's happening at Twin. didn't find out much. But then about 10 years later, there was an article in one of the national newspapers saying that there had been a boarding school in, in Norfolk that was in trouble because it was alleged to be part of a cult. And I found out that it was being run by Twin. And the journalist who'd done this then began to describe a, an international network of so-called progressive education projects that were slightly cultish, but also were generating quite a large amounts of money and nobody was sure where the money was going to. And eventually I found out that actually the, the Danish government had really been tried to get hold of this money um, and the group who founded Swind had uh, exiled themselves to South America where they were not able to be extradited. Now, I will end this now, but the interesting thing was that although this, to me, sad and unhappy story had happened, when I looked at Twind five years ago, got in touch with people there, Funny enough, the windmill had been built. It was a very successful, uh, self-sufficient community, so the idea had not been wrong, but The motivations that
0: some of those had. That raises a a lot of interesting questions. Can I just ask you some of them while they're still in my mind? Um, Firstly, when you contacted them five years ago, were they still hostile to the local villages or had the village and the group of twinned somehow achieved an accommodation?
1: I wasn't able to establish that level of contact. I
0: just um, checked
1: with them that, you know, how many people were there. And it was a completely, completely different organisation. But the fact is that all the the kind of the landscape was there, the farm, fields were there, all the buildings were there, the windmill was there, generating electricity. Uh, and I was, and basically, I just got a you know email sort of back saying, "No, you know, we're doing very well." And um, well, I don't think one was kind of a bit allowed to ask questions. It would have been uh, impolite to ask, go back to. The, the more disturbing elements of their origins 30, 40 years before.
0: So the people who are there now then are not people who were founding members?
1: Subs- no, not at all.
0: So it's become, I don't know,
1: normalised? Or, or It's become normalised, and I suppose, I suspect, and I that it could well have been a bit like companies that are about to go bust when... Uh, the bankers put in uh, a new management team or something like that. I think the Danish government had quite a lot of money invested in it because they were paying quite large fees for the disturbed young people to be there. Um, And they were paying fees for the teacher training courses and so on. So there was quite a lot of government money going into it. And I guess that at some point, when the founders decamped uh, to South America... That the government had put in put in some new kind of structure, but, but but since all the infrastructure was there, and it seemed to be working, indeed it was working. Um, I suppose it it's kind of it has happened before in other things where a new team can make something a success of something that wasn't there before.
0: Although it sounds that this is slightly slightly more interesting than that because it sounds like it was a success the whole time on one level. Whilst having a, a, a sort of hidden underbelly that was doing something different.
1: Yes. Now this does raise um, an interesting thing. I'm, I have become very interested in cults. I've known several friends or people of my age, which is now quite old, who had children who have lost, basically, lost their children to religious cults, and I've seen how terrible and painful that has been. So I'm interested in it because I think I'm always worried about the ambivalence, the overlap between utopianism and the dark side of utopianism, which can become very self-destructive. So uh, I did a small book about this for the Swedenborg Society. And in researching that, I came across a very good Home Office report in 1989, a new period, published in Britain, commissioned by the government, who were then very worried about young people joining religious cults and being alienated from their families. And it was written by a woman called Eileen Barker, a sociologist, um, and it was very, it was very even-handed. And at one point, she did say that many, many people escape from cults and actually have learned an awful lot. That haven't, they haven't been fatally damaged by them. So there's clearly something else can go on in cults, particularly those based around physical manual labor and music making or arts or spirituality that can help a lot of people. Um, It's just that sometimes you need to find out, you know, whether it's gone over the edge to that situation where there are some people within that organisation or cult who are there for much more ambivalent
0: motives. Right. I was telling you before we started recording about my experience with Osho, who I've always admired in some ways for his complete openness about the fact that he was taking money off people. I knew somebody when I was at university who persuaded her her and she came from a wealthy background and persuaded her parents to give her all their inheritance right now. There was a lot it wasn't a simple matter and there was a long toing and froing and family strife, etc. but in the end her parents did give her uh, all her inheritance and said, that's it. And she went off and gave it to Osho. Osho, for people who don't remember, was called Bagwam at one point and then decided to change his name to Osho. He was a former university professor in, I think, Calcutta, a professor of philosophy. He knew what he was talking about in some, in some senses, at least. And he uh, became a guru. And then he, he, it was him that moved to Oregon, moved his entire following from, uh, from Pune in, in, uh, in India to Oregon, where they built a town, a little like a gigantic version of what you're talking about in, in Denmark. They built an entire town and they bought a town in the end. They bought a small town and built a settlement on the end of it. Uh, and the town still had people living in it who were not universally pleased about this. In fact, there's a Netflix documentary, which I'll post a link to in the, in the podcast notes, about Osho and his time in Oregon. But when, when this woman I knew turned up to give Osho all her money, or her inheritance, he said to her, he said, why are you doing this? He said, don't you want the money? And she said, no, I want you to have it. And he said, well, I don't want it. I don't want it. But if you're going to give it to me, I'll, I'll take it. But I'll tell you what, all I'm going to do is buy another Rolls Royce. Osho had this obsession or ironic obsession with Rolls Royces. And in the compound they all lived in, which wasn't very large, like a large park, he had about 28 Rolls Royces and used to drive one a day round the, the compound. While people waved at him and he said i'm just going to buy another rolls royce and i don't need one i've got enough but since you're giving me the money and i don't need it and you apparently don't need it then that's what i'm going to do with it do you still want to give it to me and she says yes he said okay there you go his reaction his attitude was very much one in which he and you were saying earlier maybe it's a form of humiliation he didn't so much humiliate his his disciples as point out that being his disciple was a rather stupid way of living your life. But if, you know, it was your choice. I've always found that interesting in the same way I find stories about Native American stories about uh, Coyote, the trickster God, interesting. He personified a kind of trickster God. He was going to not even trick you out of your money, just take it because you were and then tell you how stupid you were for giving it to him. He, of course, um, well, not of course, but perhaps appropriately, died in mysterious circumstances. The, the, he had, like many cult leaders, like L. Ron Hubbard, he attracted people who would like to be in his position. He attracted a small following who were his trusted followers. And, of course, some of them wanted to actually lead the business. And one of them attempted to poison the inhabitants of this town in Oregon which led to him and them having to flee America. one thing about the documentary on Netflix, one of the things he did was he recorded everything he he did, and this was the uh this was the early to mid-70s, and he still had video cameras recording everything. So for future documentary makers, this was absolute cult gold. Anyway, he went back to Pune, started um restarted himself there and then died in the mysterious circumstances which may or may not have involved being poisoned. So that's, that's Osho, who I, as I say, I've found interesting because there wasn't actually a, a, an underbelly there, except amongst his followers aimed at himself. More that he was deliberately telling young people who didn't want to be involved in the consumerist society that they should just give it all to him so he could waste it. So,
1: that's, that's, I mean, that to me would be a cult based on the idea that by devoting your life to um, a guru, it will mean that your own life will be improved. You'll learn more about yourself. You'll learn more how to relate to other people. And you'll find inner serenity. And peace and so on. That's quite an individualistic thing. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that is that's you know very understandable. Who wouldn't? Because there are lots of retreats and therapeutic communities whose work I greatly admire who offer that as well. Not with the guru, but a retreat as a religious retreat as a place in which to find yourself. I suppose that's quite different from the the political notion of the utopian community, where you're going to set up a model. Of the how the which you'd like other people to follow. So the Chartists did it with their Chartist villages. Uh, I suppose you could say New Lanark. I mean, New Lanark was a model industrial community. Bourneville was mm. a model industrial community. Port Sunlight. Port Sunlight, exactly. So I suppose there's something more like we were talking about last time, this notion that um, if you can't change the whole society, you can create something that uh, is a microcosm of the world you like to be involved in. And then I suppose there are those which are both religious and political, chileistic, if you like, who believe in some kind of second coming, whether it's the world revolution or the second coming of a, a God um, that's going to change everybody or bring about a completely new world order. And I suppose that's interesting. I know, I know very little about evangelical religion. But I mean, it does seem uh, that in America, you know, a significant percentage of people do still believe in some revelation or second, you know, triumphal coming. So that it's quite a strong ideal, this notion that the world is going to be either given a second chance or it's going to come to end times. And we don't know what's going to happen
0: after that. Yes, I think that's, that's true. And I think that that lays the ground for quite a lot of cults, if by cult we mean a small group that follow a particular person, regardless of what that person may say that contradicts what they said previously. So yes, so I think in America there has been a large number of religious cults since the at least the 19th century. I mean, arguably the Mormons were a religious cult. Well, yeah. they were a religious cult. Well, although nowadays I think we're supposed to call groups like the Mormons and Scientologists and others like that. We're supposed to call them um, new religious movements, (NRMs). And I think that raises an interesting point. With regard to both Scientologists and Mormons, if something starts as a cult, does it only remain a cult when it's small? In other words, whatever we think we might think about the start of the Mormons and the start of Scientology, they have both in different ways grown to be accepted within large swathes of society. They both have a normalized position where you can stand up and say, I am a Mormon, I'm a Scientologist, and people will accept that, just as they would if you said, I'm a Methodist or I'm a Hindu. Is it the case then that cults are only cults when they're small? That if you somehow manage to leverage a cult into having a major societal backing, then it ceases to be a cult and becomes part of that society. I think that's partly true, but I think it a lot comes back, in my
1: personal experience, really to the degree to which someone joining an organisation like that is required to or feels obliged to cut themselves off from their previous familial and uh, friendship ties. Because that is clearly very socially destructive. And if it happened on too large a scale could be, you know, seriously socially disruptive, which is, in a way, a bit what like what is happening now in the division, and it, not just in America, but elsewhere, into warring tribes rather than simple traditional political affiliations. Um, they're becoming much more... It's not a case of this is what I believe. It's the case of, this is what I believe, and I'm going to make sure you know, people who believe like you don't get a chance to um, enact
0: But are, they, are those connected to cult leaders? Is it the case that um, whatever belief we're talking about here, that it, it's tied into a, a leader? Jordan Peterson would deny he leads anything, I think, but we might say Jordan Peterson leads a particular... Mm form of thinking uh, Steve Bannon would probably agree he leads something and we might even insist he leads something but that might not be strictly speaking true so are we if we're defining these as moves from uh p- political affiliations to warring tribes that's disquieting but we might just say that's the zeitgeist there's a move towards individualism but they would become a cult would they not if They had a cult leader. We could argue that Donald Trump is a cult leader, except he would fall foul of what I just said. He's leading a large political organization that has been normalized for 200 years. So it'd be difficult, to, I think, to claim Donald Trump was a cult leader, whatever one felt about him, or am I missing the point?
1: No, I think that, that's very interesting. I mean, one would have to say in the 16th century, for example, in, in, in Britain and mainland Europe, I mean, the, the, the rift between Protestants and Catholics got so extreme, it led to hundreds of thousands of deaths, and at which point you would have to say that that religion, that set of religious beliefs has become socially destructive Well, it's not the sort of thing one would normally expect from a religion, which is that its principal thing is to kill anybody who doesn't believe in it.
0: But one wouldn't say, I don't don't think at least one would say, that Martin Luther was a cult leader, nor would one say that um, Henry VIII was a cult leader in his determination to establish the Church of England. No, no, I'd agree with that but but on the other hand one might say that some small religious cult found on the in the northwest of finland was a cult or one, one might say that something like the radio church of god in the 1930s and 40s in in america which prophesied the end of the world and had herbert w armstrong as its leader one might say that one could make a case for that being a cult that stood, or at least, uh, uh, at least a rather nasty sect. Yes, and it's interesting to we. I mean, we should discuss the difference between a cult
1: and a sect. I mean, to me, I mean, what has been interesting is the the way in which Protestant itself then to subdivide into Methodism, uh, Anglicanism, uh, and then various um, further subdivisions endless subdivisions in the 19th century. I mean, when I grew up in Essex, we had our own religion, uh, there was a, 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 a Christian sect called the peculiar people. That um, they had 57 churches in Essex, the county I come from. But they they they're, they're, they define themselves against uh, their own religion. They they're on. On some kind of small doctrinal differences. So, a sect, in a way, a kind of schism or a, a breakaway to try and find a new way of interpreting, but a, still a shared origin, which is
0: Christianity. Yeah, I would agree with this, Ken. I think the difference between a cult and a sect, I think, at least a useful difference, I think, goes back to what you alluded to earlier, where a cult wants you to withdraw from the world, whereas a sect wants you to believe something different from the world whilst continuing to operate in it. The Worldwide Church of God, which I talked about earlier, as the Radio Church of God, people will remember that certainly in England and America. It had a magazine called The Plain Truth that it used to hand out free yeah. at, at railway stations. Yes. And they, they very definitely believe that everybody who called themselves a Christian wasn't, except for them. And they had very severe doctrinal differences. And they definitely believed in the end times. And they had charismatic leader Herbert W. Armstrong and then the more famous and rather doomed Garner Ted Armstrong, who successfully got excommunicated from his own church. They they had a particular view, but it didn't require you to withdraw from the world. The exact opposite in fact so that i think would in the terms we're talking about label them as a sect mm. and quite a large sect at their height and then they then they split for internal reasons
1: yeah i think is what i've initially found so attractive about twind was that my experience prior to going there uh in left-wing politics was that most of left-wing politics was about going to meetings and shouting at each other about differences of opinion over what Marx or Trotsky or Lenin had said, while carrying on leading a typically bourgeois life, it was um, it was very much kind of um, just simply around talking. The more you talked. Uh, the more you the closer the, the world will get to changing i remember there's a very great uh, a very friend of george Orwell, jack commoner a, a newcastle railwayman who turned into a novelist he said socialism will not be built book by book he was very much a practical man, <laughs> and uh, he was very involved in a, a, a christian community i've recently been studying so why twind was so attractive to me, and in a way still is, was that they they weren't just talking, they were getting down to the nitty-gritty of what is it like to um, try and break up traditional roles about who does the cooking, who does the bricklaying, who plays the music, and so on. So all that was tremendously interesting, and it still is. And I suppose I'm amazed how few, whenever because I do a lot of writing about architecture, and town planning but when i've read dozens dozens of books on town planning in europe in the 20th century but the the number of kind of practical experiments not necessarily even successful ones that they all carry on referring to is is in, in single figures you know there's the Pameo sanatorium in finland Of our Alto. In Britain, we've got the Peckham Health Centre and we've got the Finsbury Health Centre. Up in Edinburgh, we had the tower project belonging to Patrick Geddes. We've got some new towns, arguably, as well. But the, the numbers of interesting, innovative community experiments. Or live work experience is still remarkably thin, and yet the amount of talk and writing about how things could be different is remarkably thick uh, in more ways than one.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I wouldn't disagree with you there, Ken. I think I think that's uh, that's true. I think the lesson I would draw from thinking about cults is that they they don't lead to that kind of change they lead to a very fragile kind of change. Because one of the things Osho said was that when I die, I guarantee you numbers of people who claim to be my followers will start up some kind of business and start selling my ideas and making themselves wealthy, and they'll have missed the whole point. Hmm. And I think there... If we, t- if we take him at his word, then he's pointing out the fact that any, any cult will ossify very rapidly. That A cult leader that isn't immortal, and so far none of them have been, a cult leader that isn't immortal will leave their followers with an ossified set of revealed texts or revealed ideas which will fail to meet the continually changing challenges the world throws at them. And I think, that for me, that's, the, in the end, the dangerous part of cults. Not that they drag people from their families, which they do, but they drag them from their families into a system which is guaranteed to ossify and eventually collapse.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, unlike sort of more practical um, forms of belief, which are about helping others, kind of going out into the world and doing good, they have they have changed. They've changed very few people outside their own kind of world. Uh, they've had no impact, mm. as it were, which I think in origin is what a lot of cults started out believing that they were going to make the world a better place. But the means and their instruments are used. Always seemed almost determined to turn inwards uh, and start build and as you say ossifying solidifying. I mean, mm. in the Home Office report on um, religious cults, in the, they, they said, well, <clears throat> sorry, Eileen Barker said there were five really things you should look out for. The first one was geographical separation: groups that go up into the mountains or to some dis, you know some isolated island somewhere where they can't be kind of part of the world society. Secondly, that uh, they cut off links to, you know, the surrounding area or people with it and include ask people to cut off links from their families. Then the kind of the idea that only the, th- the only reality is the world they live in, that what is going on outside their particular religious or spiritual uh, world is actually not Real, They're, they have the only reality, and then of course, then you get the, the rise of the leader and the leader cult. So you know, they, I suppose maybe I'm we're over worrying about this because she, she also, as I said at the beginning, she said that many people escape cults or they go through one of these movements and aren't permanently damaged. And in fact. Quite a lot of people gain something from them, but I think in terms of political cults, for me, looking back, you know, over quite a long, many, many, several, quite a few decades of being involved in politics, the gap between um, what people say they want to do and their ability or wish to actually practically do something is still extremely wide. Which I would not say anymore. for example, for. Christian organisations like the Quakers or the Methodists, or the you know who you know in where I live there, are, there have been a lot of political groups claiming to do lots of things, but in the end, work I notice that most work with refugees, most work with the homeless, most work, work with alcoholics is, tends to fall on or be taken up by people associated with Christianity, which is an irony that's not lost on me.
0: <laughs> okay, Ken, I think that's an interesting point, and I don't disagree with this. And I think strong leaders can be detrimental, whether or not they're effectively leading a cult or whether they're just leading a lo- looser group of people. Let's leave it there for the moment, and hopefully we can come back and have another chat in the not too distant future. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Yeah. Bye. Bye for now. Now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.